songs have been uh, enjoyable for you to sing. I hope they've been compelling to you and they speak to your heart and that you're ministered by the words, by the lyrics. And that, you know, singing is an expression of worship. And oftentimes we would categorize singing as only worship. But we know that worship is more than just singing, but singing does play uh, a tantamount role uh, in our worship. But there is more to worship than singing. Uh, there is the studying of God's truth and his character and his will. And so turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 for the Lord willing second to last time. And... We're only looking at, for this series, three chapters, uh, but I hope they've been helpful to you. I hope that these three chapters can uh, minister to your needs and speak to your heart and uh, display for you your condition before God and your need for Christ and uh, His ministry and His work, ultimately culminating, of course, on the cross. Uh, For tonight, we're going to look at uh, chapter 5, verse 38 to 42. And I've titled this sermon, um, instead of the common title that I've titled these past couple of sermons of your brother and your blank, uh, tonight and the next night will be surrounding uh, your enemy. Your enemy. And so the sermon for tonight is your enemy and your vengeance. Your enemy and your vengeance. And so, hope you're already at Matthew chapter 5. We'll read from verse 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's read the word of the living God. Uh, In October of 1966, uh, the Black Panther Party was founded in Oakland, California. Uh, They were formed two years before the assassination of uh, the civil rights movement leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, The Black Panther Party was initially formed uh, and built upon the platforms of community service, doing good to the people. Um, They would start breakfasts for young children and medical centers for the needy and other community group projects. However, uh, this group 
as it grew and as it ballooned from just an organization in Oakland, California, it ballooned and grew into a national and then international organization. And the group subsequently drifted further and further politically left. Your left. Left. My left. Uh, as the group grew into this huge uh, multinational organization of many, many citywide chapters or city groups. And sooner after that, uh, the group devolved into this quasi guerrilla activist group that sought to undermine key government institutions such as the police and other local governments. Um, I say all these things, not as an expert of late 20th century American civil rights. I'm no expert. Um, some of you might be even more well-informed than I am. You're taking your U.S. history classes. A push, anyone? Anyone? APS history? No? Okay, that's fine. Uh, but my purpose this evening is to uh, just draw your attention to why this group existed and where it, what it eventually became. And to remind you, wherever you are in your political, racial, social justice, convictions, whatever, that the kingdom ethic of Jesus teaches us here in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom ethic is radically different from any man-conceived socioeconomic movement, um, whether you have the peaceful protests of Gandhi and MLK or the most radical, like the Black Panther Party or the Communist Party in China or whatever, whatever any other revolutionary coup seen in history. Uh, the Pharisees and the Jewish elite at the time of the church's birth believed that the church was such a movement, like the Black Panther Party or a revolutionary religious coup, so to speak. Jesus died and the Jews denied him as their true Messiah. Uh, but as the wise Pharisee Gamaliel uh, points out, if this movement known as the church is from God, Nothing, nothing you can do can stop it. The kingdom of God in its current form is centered around the church. It is the church in which the current members of the kingdom of God reside here on earth. So therefore, this gospel movement known as the church and her great commission must by nature look radically different than any other human movement or any other human revolution because it is from God. And the crux of this difference is seen in how the kingdom of God and her citizens deal with the concept of retribution or the concept of retaliation or simply put, how Christians deal with revenge. Jesus Christ, quoting his father, says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I shall repay. Now, this echoes from the Old Testament, and it perpetuates the standard by which God 
God's people handle and deal with their enemies. One must never take matters of vengeance into his or or her own hands. But rather, one must trust every outcome to God, especially during times of personal attack. So, in our section, Jesus continues concerning our relationships with others. Uh, And now we reach a tipping point, a boiling point of sorts. Everything we've studied up to this point, up until now, seems easy in comparison. Because they primarily concern the relationships we have with people who we probably naturally do get along with. Our brother or our sister. However, Jesus takes this relationships concept a step further and now challenges us, challenges the listeners, challenges you to view all of these various dynamics from anger to lust to divorce to your oath, your word. Everything concerning our relationships with our brothers, Jesus takes it a step further and challenges us and pushes us to apply the same principles to our enemies. From the range of those people we just don't get along with, you know, you have those people in school, you know, you guys are cool, but you're not going to be friends with them, right? There's those people. To our last choice when it comes to who we make as friends, a last pick on the kickball team. Uh, to the other end of the spectrum, those people who have probably wronged us in the past, those people we vehemently do not like. Those people we disregard or even disagree with. And so everything stated reaches this culminating boiling point of sorts where Jesus challenges us that everything stated before, including what is going to be stated afterwards, and this, this sermon and next week's sermon, it applies here. It applies to your enemies and then some. So let's look at and begin the conclusion of this section concerning relationships. Notice how Jesus stresses the importance of going above and beyond what is required of you, primarily because he wants to show you the kingdom of God and its ethic. What is most notably for the Christians, a heart of self-sacrifice, of self-disregard, so to speak of service even to our enemies, which all of this ultimately stems from a heart of love. Love for neighbor, even our enemies. So we'll begin to explore this concept this evening and wrap it up uh, next week and the entire section on relationships next week. And so similarly to the structure and the outline that we had um, With the past four sermons, we're going to have a similar structure, but this time just only two points. First being uh, the clarification of the law. The clarification of the law. We'll see that in verses 38 and 39. And then in verses 39 and 42, we'll see a better expression of justice. A better expression of justice. So look down with me in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus quotes one of the most quotable commandments in the Old Testament. The question is why? Why does Jesus zero in on this commandment above other commandments concerning justice? Because there are plenty, I assure you. And I think simply put, this commandment is so widely quoted, so used and abused by every Jew because in theory, this commandment is the perfect justification for self-defense. When you are wrong, on the surface, the law seems like it's the perfect excuse for retaliation. If someone hurts my eye, I can hurt the other person's eye back. It is only fair. Equal treatment under the law, they say. If someone knocks out my tooth, I should be obliged to knock out their tooth. In response, equal treatment under the law. And it seems like when you read the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament laws, when this statement is said, it, it seems like it is read that way. Self-defense. Uh, we'll be looking at Exodus 21, verses 23 and 24. A man who injures another shall repay in kind. We'll look at Leviticus 24, uh, verse 20. We'll look at Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. All these verses quote an eye for an eye. This command, this law is so widespread that it has been found on records of Mesopotamian culture. On Code of Hammurabi slates. And it just goes so far back. This concept of retribution. But something I want us to do tonight is study the Old Testament. And I want us to be all equipped to do so. It is crucially important when studying any scripture to consider two key components. uh, The genre and the context. Of course, there are more components, but those are the two that I want to draw to your attention tonight. What is the genre and what is the surrounding context of a verse or a passage I may be studying? And so I want to use this commonly misunderstood Old Testament law, this uh, New Testament use of Old Testament scripture by our Lord Jesus to walk you through how to understand an Old Testament quotation in its original context. And I also want to strengthen your own Bible study. Then when we come back to this verse and see Jesus's clarification of the law, we will notice how like every other clarification he has made before, Jesus is not reinventing the wheel or rewriting a new law, uh, but he is diligently and patiently walking us through misconceptions and misinterpretations of it and therefore reveals to us the heart of his father, the heart or the will of God. So, get ready. Turn with me to Exodus 21. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Chapter 21. As you turn to Exodus chapter 21, you will notice that Exodus chapter 21 is right before 
or right after, excuse me, Exodus 20. And if you look at your Bibles at what Exodus 20 says, your Bible will most likely say something along these three words. The Ten Commandments. Here God in Exodus 20 gives Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments for the first time. This is a key concept when studying the context of verse. You want to look at the surrounding chapters, the surrounding narrative, the, the surrounding books even, that Genesis and Leviticus form a sandwich in between Exodus. And so there's a flow that you want to pick up on. Exodus is the second book of the Bible and the first of four books concerning God's salvific work in freeing the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, which is a symbolic picture of being freed from the bondage of sin. Um, This first generation of Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai, the mountain of the living God, and meet with God there. So you want to pick up on the flow of a narrative. For these first 20 chapters in Exodus, there's been nothing but narrative. This happened, and then 10 plagues happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Red Sea happened sometime, somewhere in between there too. Um, You want to pick up on the flow. You want to notice how the narrator is retelling the events in a way that he wants to emphasize the events that has occurred. Uh, But now, starting in chapter 20, there's a slight shift in genre. The narrative, for the most part, has ceased. The narrator, or the author, Moses, goes into an explanation of the Ten Commandments God just gave to Israel. And here, in chapter 21, is the first occurrence of this concept of lex talionis, or an eye for an eye. Look up to verse 12 in chapter 21. It says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, meaning if it wasn't premeditated, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man, kidnaps him, and, found, and anyone found in possession of him, meaning enslaving people, shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. When men in quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, He shall be avenged, but if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Now here you go. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Look down at the surrounding context. Verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. I'm going to stop there. Which word, which verb comes up multiple times? Strike. 
strike. Moses uses the word strike or hit deliberately, hit with malicious intent. And he will continue to use this term after uh, verse 24. And he uses it over and over again. And so we get this sense, this picture of repeated, uh, repeat, uh, repeated, excuse me, sense of use of violence here. Furthermore, in verse 22, there's a uh, mention of judges and juries as well. There are fines to be paid. So ultimately, there's a role of adjudication or advocation between two parties. Uh, there's a, a plaintiff. There's a defendant. And so early on, right when this concept is introduced, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it is introduced in the context of being before a judge and jury when it comes to malicious intent. There must be an arbitrator between hurt parties and there is this concept of equal treatment. And there's an application to ensure that the right punishment is mited out. If it costs someone an eye, an eye must be given in return. If it costs someone a foot, a foot must be given in return. There must be equal compensation to ensure fairness, not a license for free reign Retaliation. You guys pick up on that? Good. Turn to one book over, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 24. In the book of Leviticus, uh, Moses goes into the deeper inner workings of uh, Jewish law the role of priests, the role of sacrifices, the role of feasts and offerings and so on and so forth. Um, He goes into greater detail, unfolding even more the laws given in the Exodus from the Ten Commandments. Notice again in chapter 24, verse 20, that there must be a standard by which punishment is given. In other words... The punishment must fit the crime. Leviticus 24, we'll just start at verse 17. Whoever takes a human life shall be surely put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Uh, In our American government, there exists a concept of not allowing a greater punishment to be given for a lesser crime. It is the system of justice, God's system of justice, that matters here. It's not so much the specific punishment that is given. The eye is just used as an illustration. The tooth is just used as an illustration. Uh, But rather... The punishment must fit the crime. All these laws are given out in the name of holiness. Holiness is the major theme of the book of Leviticus. And therefore the people must take sin seriously and deal with sin seriously. Much like how we saw a couple weeks ago when it comes to dealing with the sin of one's lust. You have to do it drastically. You have to do it personally. Israel Israel was called to corporately hold its members accountable to the standard of holiness in which they all agreed before God when they made a covenant with him at Mount Sinai. 
There at Mount Sinai, Israel covenanted or they made a promise that they would do everything the law of, of God would ask them to do. Therefore, treating members' injuries must be done fairly and equally according to the standards in which God has aligned, has given. You can't go out of those boundaries. Let's go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy, uh, if you know any bit of Latin, is the giving of the second law. Um, In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses now speaks not to the first generation anymore, but to the second, because the first generation has failed to enter the promised land by faith. And so Moses has to reteach the law, re-give the law a second time uh, to ensure that this new generation understands the ramifications of who they are as God's people. And so here in Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, The phrase appears not as the focus of the section, but rather it continues this pattern of disputing before judges when two different parties are in disagreement. Therefore, when a false witness is discovered, a correction must be made that fits the wrong that was committed. Hence, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and so on and so forth. So just look at verse 21. Back up to verse 20. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Do you notice when you diligently comb through the various cross-references that relate to one text that the overarching themes and key ideas become more and more apparent? more and more reinforced for you. The three Old Testament verses that we just saw all refer having to do with justice rightly and fairly carried out. There is never mention of personal justice or personal vengeance, but rather it is always set in the context of fitting punishment with crimes. Therefore, Pay attention when the New Testament quotes the Old. Go back to the original quotations because what we see happening here and what we've done these past couple of weeks is that we've seen Jesus demonstrate to us the unity of Scripture. The unity of Scripture. We saw in the beginning that Jesus asserted that he has not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. That not one letter or stroke of the letter shall pass away until everything has been fulfilled. Therefore, when he quotes the Old Testament, when Paul quotes the Old Testament, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Peter quote the Old Testament, you can be sure that if you go back, if you go back and investigate the original Old Testament verse, you'll discover the underlying connection that makes the New Testament quotation make sense. So I highly encourage you to incorporate that into your study. A lot of your Bibles have probably some kind of indicator that a particular verse in the Old Testament is being quoted. It's like pulling that loose string on your shirt. If you keep tugging on that string, more and more will unravel. 
And it's a similar concept if you keep tugging at the string of Scripture, more and more of it will unravel to you if you are diligent in studying it, diligent in pursuing it. So, after this long excursus in the Old Testament, let's go back to Matthew. Let's return to our main text. Jesus begins again by saying, You have heard that it was said. Uh, And specifically, the Jews who knew their Old Testaments, who knew their Torahs, who knew their first five books of the Bible, would have heard it said at least three different times as we have examined. Jesus has already previously illustrated that there is a gross misunderstanding to the law. And he highlights that, uh, he highlights here that um, not to resist the evil person. The term refers to standing against a person by which you'd be in a complete about face or a complete direct uh, opposition against them. Uh, Meaning right in front of them, blocking their way, nose to nose. The term used for evil person or the one who is evil refers to just a general term that ranges from a person of annoyance or a hindrance uh, to someone who is especially purposefully harmful or in short, evil. Jesus is in essence teaching them that uh, don't even get into this evil person's way. Uh, Do not associate with them. Uh, Don't even stop them or try to stop them from their evil. Hence, don't even try to take matters into your own hands. And to give an illustration that I'm pretty sure all of you guys are familiar with, uh, Jesus is saying, sorry guys, don't be Batman. Don't be Batman. Don't be a vigilante. Uh, don't, because when you're a vigilante, not only are you circumventing the law, uh, but you're completely going against it or resisting Jesus' commands or you're taking the law into your own hands. So do not be Batman. Sorry, guys. And so at this initial base level, Jesus is teaching that do not take vengeful matters into your own hands. Do not even associate or get in an evil person's way. This coincides with the rest of Scripture, especially uh, in the, the Psalms that we've been studying on Sunday, that the righteous person should have nothing to do with the evil person, especially when they are in the act of committing evil. Do not stand with them, do not sit with them, do not mock with them. So immediately you may ask, well then, what are we to do then when someone goes out of the way and personally harms us? And so Jesus moves into our second point to address this immediate and pressing question. And here we see a better expression of justice. Verse 39 says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Here, Jesus describes a descending scale of personal crimes that a person may run into when they're confronted by an evil person. He starts with this violent attack. If someone strikes you, uh, then moving to someone taking judicial or legal action against you to to someone uh, 
seizing upon you to force you to do some labor as a soldier would conscript conscript, uh, the civilians to do work for them. And finally, to something general of anyone asking of anything from you. This first illustration, this violent slap on your right cheek would most likely be some kind of disrespectful backhand. Uh, Being a predominantly right-handed culture, uh, for someone to be struck on the right cheek most likely meant that the right hand was used to backhand that cheek. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek, or literally, give him the other one. Jesus then goes to give a courtroom illustration of someone suing you for your inner shirt, your undershirt, a personal, intimate item. But Jesus says, well, don't let them just take your inner shirt, your tunic, Not just your undershirt, but also let them take your cloak as well. And I can imagine you guys out here in northeastern PA winters of someone taking your cloak. It's not pleasant. Uh, The outer shell garment protects the person from most of the natural elements. Uh, This outer piece of clothing would be far more valuable than an inner shirt. Because they were made with heavier material, more material, thus making it more expensive to produce. And even in Old Testament uh, law, we're not going to go back to it, it would comment not to take a person's cloak. Jesus moves on to interacting with soldiers or conscription. Anytime a Roman soldier at that time would force someone, especially non-Roman citizens, and they especially like to pick on the Jews, They would force them to come and serve them and make them carry them heavy belongings and heavy burdens, so on and so forth. Jesus says, not just do what they've asked you to do, but go the extra mile. And that phrase is so fitting because literally that Greek term is, Jesus used here to describe the situation is someone asking you to go 1,000 steps. 1,000 steps. And if you do the math, trust me, I did the math, 1,000 steps does equate a mile. And so Jesus says, We'll go them an extra, another extra thousand steps, which is literally the extra mile. Finally, Jesus puts it plainly and says, to give the one who begs from you. When asked to do something by someone, just do it. Do it out of heart of service. Do not resist, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I think the point here is slowly becoming clear. Jesus is clarifying here a better expression of justice in the sense of not just retaliating, not just taking your revenge, but going out of one's way to serve people, even people you do not like, people whom you would even consider to be your enemy. Um, This heart of service is not based upon some kind of begrudging forced attitude. Just because Jesus says so, I have to do it but it's based upon the kingdom of heaven, as Christ has described what the kingdom of heaven is, that the people who are in this kingdom are not of this world. We've studied all these beatitudes, and we saw how they lend themselves to a heart of service, because the citizen of the kingdom, the Christian knows where they are from and where they are going. That chapter, chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews, that great hall of faith describing men and women from the Old Testament who've displayed 
extraordinary faith at the end of the book of uh, chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. It says, speaking of these saints of old, that they were persecuted for their faith. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword, afflicted and mistreated. And the writer commentates and says, these men, these women were of whom the world was not worthy. The world is not worthy of the man or the woman of faith. So therefore, as you continue to walk in faith, as you continue to walk with Jesus and you encounter these situations where your faith is tested and your love is tried, understand that as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the world has no hold on you. It is not worthy of the faith in which you possess. And certainly when you are struck on the cheek, when your cloak is taken from you, when asked to go one, two, five hundred miles, understand that you faithfully and joyfully endure these things because of the example of the one that has done these things and gone these things before you. Jesus, not despising the shame of the cross, willingly walked that mile to Calvary. Uh, Jesus, not just being struck on the right cheek, but being spit upon, being whipped, being mocked, being placed a crown of thorns and bruised, bore every physical and spiritual infirmity. Jesus, being stripped naked, was nailed to the cross, nailed to the tree, without any objection. And Jesus, knowing the ultimate cost for the redemption of sinners like you and like me, hung there. And although he could have commanded an entire legion of angels to rescue him, he did not. Rather, into his Father's hands, he committed his spirit, and therefore the work of everlasting atonement was completed. Look to the example of Christ. Look at how the all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient second person of God did not take it upon himself to avenge himself, but rather committed his will to the will of his Father. So when we refuse to retaliate, when we refuse to avenge ourselves, when we leave vengeance to the Lord, we are communicating this same kind of Christ-likeness to the world. We are not strong in of ourselves, but we are weak in of ourselves. We are, however, strong in the Lord because he is our strength. He is our confidence, Paul says. When I am weak, then I am strong. When I am reviled, I do not revile in return. When struck down, we do not strike back in return. When we are mocked and flamed, we do not turn our words in kind in return. All of these things we hold to because our master, Jesus Christ, set the example for us. Therefore, whenever you see injustice, whenever you feel injustice personally, whenever you are attacked for your faith, whenever you are confronted for your testimony, look first to Jesus. Don't look within yourselves. Don't look for some cute way of avoiding persecution from Christ, avoiding proclamation for Christ. When you are wrong, look to Jesus. Look and behold how our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ was wronged and yet like a sheep to the slaughter was silent 
before his shears. Look to Jesus, the suffering servant, and then be bold for him. Turn the other cheek. Give your cloak. Go the extra mile. Do not refuse those who ask of you. All because Jesus has done all of these things and more. Therefore, when you fall in line and you are reviled and when you are persecuted, when you are struck down, um, you follow the example of Christ, you know for a fact. You can be 100% sure that you are walking in the will of God, that you are abiding in Christ and Christ in you because you are suffering in the same way he has. This kind of text teaches us how we can have assurance because it really gets close to our hearts. Christ invades our kitchens here and shows us that our natural tendency to retaliate, to speak back, to hit back, to get revenge is a sinful and fleshly tendency. We must conform under the lordship of Christ. If you can excel in this area, if you can tame your vengeful, self-defensive, fleshly tendencies, That's an amazing thing. But for the rest of us, uh, look to Christ. Uh, Look at this passage and be reminded that God is a just God and will not allow evil to go unpunished. Uh, For a time, it may seem like the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. And that is the main theme of the entire scriptures. That the righteous one, the servant, the son of God, suffered at the hands of wicked men. And this has been true ever since the fall that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. But there will come a point in which Jesus Christ will come and to rule his kingdom and everything will be set right. There will come a point in which God will give a final accounting for everyone's deeds, both good and evil, righteous and unrighteous, wicked and and not wicked. And God will set out the appropriate judgment or the appropriate blessing for all things done. You and I will be a part of this judgment as well. If you are a Christian, you will be saved, but not after you are judged for your deeds and your works. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that you cannot simply coast your way into heaven. But what you do on earth does matter. And for some, some people will be rewarded more in heaven for their good deeds, for their sacrifice, for their love for God and for people and for the gospel. And some others, even some of you, will get into heaven by the skin of your teeth. Barely made it. And so I hope you take these statements, these clarifications from Jesus seriously. Because as we continue studying this sermon, Jesus will eventually come to a point and say it outright that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who proclaims they follow Jesus will be truly a Christian, is a truly Christian. And what is important is if you do the will of God, those are the people who will see and enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself to see if you are producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
assess your love to see if you truly love God and love your neighbor or you simply pay lip service to the first and second greatest commandments. Uh, To this day, there are small pockets, small chapters of the Black Panther Party. Uh, The civil rights movement, as our grandparents knew it, is over. Now, new movements, new hashtag defund the police, hashtag this, that, social justice trends come. They have come and they have gone as the whims of the world change. New injustices are highlighted and championed by social media influencers and pundits every day. And all of these change with the whims of man as there's no standard of morality for them. There's no definitive right or wrong for them. But I can assure you that there's one movement, as Gamaliel said, that has not changed and will not change until their king has returned, our king has returned. And that is the movement of the gospel and the Great Commission. The church cannot be stopped now nor in Jesus' second coming. And so therefore, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Endure. When you are wrong, endure for the sake of Christ. Paul, speaking about his sufferings for Christ, he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's not saying that how Christ suffered was not enough or was not sufficient for atonement for sin, but rather Paul is indicating how he and all other followers of Jesus, us today, fall in line of this same kind of suffering for our master and king, the same kind that he suffered. And so as we suffer knowing that we are suffering in same and like kind, let us eagerly and joyfully await his return. So hold on to Christ. Hold on to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, tonight we looked at a rather difficult and challenging text, one that has forced us to consider what it truly means to live a life in submission to you. And I pray for us here. I pray for our students here. I pray for those who think about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus here. And I pray that truly a text like this has forced them to count the cost. That some here have truly considered what it means to leave father and mother, leave home, leave country, all these things for the sake of Christ and his cross. And so let us, only by your strength, boldly pick up our own crosses and follow after you. Let us endure the suffering and shame that it means to be a Christian for the sake of your glory, to demonstrate your power, and so that others may come to see Jesus and be saved as well. Help us to do that, Lord, by your spirit, we pray. Amen.